Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This week, we are offering a range of conversations from our coverage during the International Liver Congress 2022 and from this week's Surfing Nash wrap-up episode. This conversation comes from the back half of episode 33, where Louise Campbell interviews PBC Foundation CEO and fatty liver patient Robert Mitchell Thane. Most of the conversation is about psychological issues that affect the patient experience, including reactions to different forms of stigma, the need to discuss discomforting subjects like weight and sexual dysfunction, and the unique role nurses can play as an interface between providers and patients. This conversation has less pure data than much of what Surfing Nash publishes, but makes up for it in insight, humor, and empathy. Enjoy it. ILC 2022 covered a vast array of issues around drug development, non-invasive testing, patient screening and treatment, and the entire process of provider-patient communications. On each topic, there were conversations that can enlighten every fatty liver stakeholder and promise a more optimistic future for us all. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Louise Campbell. And we've been joined by Robert Mitchell Thane from Global Liver Institute and PPC Foundation. Hello. Um, from the patient's aspect, what have you seen at the conference? Is there enough? Is there enough attention? Is it in the abstracts enough? Robert Mitchell Thane. For patients? Patients and related outcomes. Good question. I think through the COVID experience, the ASLD put together a really holistic, complete patient integration program, which I think is set the standard for where we need to go in the future. Having been here for a physical meeting now, it would be great to take the lessons learned from the COVID era and maybe incorporate more patient involvement in terms of symposia, in terms of guiding some of the less experienced physicians and also allowing patients to share patient-reported outcomes, experience measures, those kind of things to, again, help inform the discussion and the way forward. Have you seen anything that, I suppose, rocks your world and you think that's really going to change what's going to happen to patients in the next year, 18 months? Again, another good question. So I, I've seen things that have rocked my world in the sense that I hope they change. So, for example, when you look at conversations around FIB4 and the number of patients that are actually being missed through that mechanism, I have concerns and I hope that there will be some answers that come forward in terms of making sure that every single patient is possibly caught at a much earlier point, particularly when you're looking at self-management, when you're looking at the emotional the psychological parts of the self-care that goes with it, the earlier we intervene, the more chance the patient is going to have of taking a much more direct and, and proactive approach that's going to be successful. Mm. And um, with the FIG4, we were talking about the FIG4 earlier in the fact that it's more or less a good test to, in a, a, to enrich a population from yeah. that and do the sessions like that. Um, but yes, it had weaknesses. What is, is the biggest thing you've noticed between, you've been to easily before, haven't you? between the previous ones and this one, apart from a smile on everybody's face, because I have noticed that outright. No, absolutely. The, the elation of seeing people in the same room. But I think with the elation comes the opportunity to have a much more robust and frank conversation. So in terms of bad practice, if you and I were to have a big long pause between your question and my answer, that would be exactly what we're used to mm. in Zoom. Because you, you come in with a point, but you don't want to talk over the other person, and you're a thousand miles away, so there's a slight delay, and so you have these big pregnant pauses. A bit like that, which don't make for great interesting listening. However, when you're all in the room together, somebody says something, 
you could spark off. Yeah. And you're like, that's a great point. Let me come in here. And then boom. And then suddenly the conversation just moved miles and miles down the road because you're sparking off each other in a much more meaningful way. That has felt absolutely amazing. And when you have such great minds coming together to actually focus on what they do and what they do well, that spark, I think, has moved a number of conversations on. And it's been reassuring to see a lot of the data that's been produced, topics and so diverse. Yeah. And I know you've done a lot of the rare diseases while you're here. Yeah, absolutely. But you also gave a session on stigma. Yes. In fatty liver disease yeah. and NAFLD. Yeah. Is that something we take for seriously when we design trials and patient outcome reports? Because, for example, somebody who's a cirrhotic and maybe uremic, I think around about 60 to 70% of men who have uremia can't get an erection. That affects their quality of life. Of course. But I don't know that there's really much literature. I did a literature search here for anything with menopause. There was some post-menopausal, but it was only in hepatitis C. There was nothing on sexual dysfunction or something that really, really affects people. Absolutely. So I, hopefully it's not the fact we're in London and we just don't talk about sex here in the UK. So funnily enough, when you asked the question earlier about easel and, and things that we did well here for the patients, the patient forum was a really well attended. I think it was a really helpful session. And Frank, now I can't remember his full name and we can look at it, but Frank spoke on behalf of Easel. He's an Irish doctor and mm. he was amazing because in a very empathic, natural and genuinely meaningful way, he said, we're listening, educate us. We want to come together to genuinely tackle stigma, <laughs> which was wonderful. And there was a buzz in the room when he was speaking because he meant it. And that's great to see. Stigma is an interesting topic because you have external stigma. So, you know, if somebody has fatty liver disease, then there's the criticism and there's, there's fat or there's judgmental or you've done it yourself and all of those aspects. But there's also internal stigma and whether you choose to actually talk about what you face inside. So there's a huge gap in the data set. But I wonder if we are part of the problem. And I think it would be helpful if we became part of the solution. Now, that said, as a middle-aged man, if I were to have sexual dysfunction, I would be particularly, spectacularly choosy about the people with whom I would share that. And part of that is the difference between the sexes. So, for example, you know, my wife were to go to her girlfriend and say, do I look fat in this? The friend would say, no, you look amazing, you look beautiful, and I love you for who you are. <laughs> if I were to go to my best pal and say, you know, am I looking fat? He'd be like, you know what, I know five fat people and you're four of them. And... It's a totally different support structure, but sometimes there are topics that are too sensitive to have that particular type of fun banter support structure. But if the doctors are going to talk about it, if the doctors are going to address it, if the community is going to address it, we have to do that first. Mm. And we have to lead from the front and say, you know what, this is an issue for me. And it might start with ones and twos, but from that trickle will come the numbers required to get us talking about the topic. And then once we're talking about a bond, Honestly, more numbers will come. And once the more numbers come, we can have a much more bigger data set, which then not only acknowledges the issue, but helps us address it. But I think you're right there. The solution does have to come from us as practitioners, nurses, doctors. Everybody should be having that conversation the first time any patient's educated with yeah. liver disease. That You might find that you get sexual dysfunction. You might have an altered body image. Let's talk about it now because it breaks down that. And I think it was Jeff Lazarus in the consensus report that high
highlighted institutional stigma within hospitals. Not so much because it's designed, it's because most hospitals don't have a liver speciality nurse. You can go into any trust in the UK, and I suspect in the US or France or Germany and get a cardiac specialist nurse or a diabetes specialist nurse. For something that is coming through very much as part of the increasing population of hospitals, we do not have that person. And that affects the quality of referrals, the length of stay, the information that a patient gets. And a lot of people don't recognize encephalopathy. They then put somebody who's agitated and irritable on morphine. That's the last you ever heard of them. We do need to address that in any way. And that should be in these pathways. It should be part of that conversation. It should also be in clinical trials because it should be an outcome measure to measure it because then it becomes in the conversation. And I think quality of life from all of that is absolutely key. And I've seen plenty of patient reports outcomes. In fact, Zabir Yanossi was discussing it yesterday, and he is by far one of the, the best experts on patient-related outcomes from taking the measurements yeah, no, and analysing the data. Absolutely. So I think you make a great point. This is the clinical experience for the patient. What's important? So when you talk to what's important about doctors, they'll say your blood tests, your prognosis, and those kind of aspects. What's important to patients is quality of life and how they feel inside and out. What's important to nurses is that middle ground where the biochemistry and all the tests impact upon quality of life. And nurses have a much, much more conversational exchange with patients. And I think this is the key. We're going out all around the world. And to some extent, in every single country, there's still doctors on a pedestal. I mean, thankfully, we're, we're past the days where we bow and curtsy with we come and go out. But there's still a huge amount of that kind of psychology that goes on. He's a doctor. He said that it must be right. And so when you're living in those circumstances, you can't necessarily have an open and honest conversation about your deepest dark fears and this is how it affects me and this is how it affects my life in private. Whereas when nurses are much more conversational, much more informal, I think it helps enormously. Mm. And so yes, there are aspects to this that are important to come from the clinical part, but we as patient patients need to meet halfway. And we need to be brave, we need to be bold, we need to be honest, because frankly, it's not going to fix itself. So let's take that first step. I think you touched on a really good point there, because the minute you tell somebody they're a patient or diagnose something, they hand over response. What are you going to do for me, doctor? Whereas if you don't ever make them a patient, poor liver health, is it could be detected without making somebody a patient because you can address it in lifestyle and things like that to some extent. But yeah. it, there is a whole host of evidence the minute we paternalise the whole thing. And that happens in clinical trials. I used to do a lot of hep C treatments yeah. and we based our whole treatment about, around about a clinical trial pathway. That was how they got good success rates. So therefore, when you bring it out of a clinical trial, you have to do the same thing to get that success rate. And one of my concerns is that when we do all of these clinical trials for NAFLD and NASH, once we get into the real world with drugs like uh, resmeteron and things like that that are likely to be approved in the next few years, and pomithidine, uh, I think it is, that we've heard a lot about this conference is that if you don't deliver it in the same way you won't get the same outcomes and those outcomes will fall and then people feel well the drug didn't do it and it's not doing what it's supposed to do we have to pay very very close attention as an industry as a clinical research program that when it rolls off the production line that we've thought of everything Mm -hmm. how do we maximize that how do we in hepatitis c we did right drug right patient right time 
And if it was never the right time for you, then we weren't worried. I've had people wait 10 years to get into treatment, but they kept engaging. Or people who've disengaged and then come back. And I think that hits to your point that we have that conversation, but we do get more time. And I think when you look at placebo lines and that for trial, it's often the nurse's engagement. And there's been some evidence here about that engagement in a couple of posters and abstracts on just one engagement with fibrous gamma, the nurse. Or there was a very good session in the nurses and associates yesterday that showed that even five years down the line, there were certain people who would reduce their cap and they were only focused on the cap. So it means something, but it also means something that engagement. No, absolutely right. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the contents of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with our final ILC 22 wrap-up, Scott Friedman and Neil Henderson discussing some of the basic science issues from the meeting. Please join us for all that. Until then, stay safe and surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.